Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening. Thank you for being with us here on ADH. Before we go to Hell's Gate in Victoria, where the Daniel Andrews reality of appalling financial mismanagement was revealed yesterday, Labor at its best. Just let me start with a good story. Tomorrow night here on ADH, we will feature an exclusive special at 8pm where I will interview Donald Trump Jr., who will be touring Australia. I have already recorded that interview in the early hours of this morning, I have to say. Now, as you know, I've been around a bit and I'm a hard marker. Donald Trump Jr.'s response to my questions in this interview provides one of the most outstanding political, philosophical and intellectual analyses of anyone I've ever interviewed. In fact, when thinking on the world stage, perhaps only Michael Gove in Britain, amongst those in the English-speaking world, would I regard as the equal of Donald Trump Jr. in his articulation, understanding, advocacy, unapologetic defence of a value system that's being attacked by cancel culture, a society being divided based on race. And to my delight, in that interview, he addresses the indoctrination in our schools. It's an outstanding performance by Donald Trump Jr. He'll be visiting Australia in July. You can get your tickets and you'll certainly want them after you hear from him tomorrow night. Trumplive.com.au, trumplive.com.au. It's an exclusive special tomorrow night here on ADH at 8pm. And obviously that interview will be saved in our library. Pleasingly, already, there have been American expressions of interest in the interview, which will hopefully be played in America beyond what our American viewers see here on ADH. That's it, tomorrow night, eight o'clock, Alan Jones and Donald Trump Jr. Well, to the disgrace that is Victoria. A budget yesterday that has Victoria on track to have debt not only greater than that of New South Wales, Queensland and Tasmania combined, but debt nearly equal to that of all five other states, including WA and South Australia. Property investors, private schools, big business, public sector workers, a massive taxing budget. Two years ago, to save his financial hide, Andrews imposed a mental health levy. Now a 10-year COVID levy which will for 10 years remind us and Victorian voters of the financial cost of the pandemic and the incompetence of the Andrews response. 40 billion, 40,000 million of COVID-related spending will now take years to pay. And by then, this mob will be gone to their beach houses and their superannuation, a long way from the financial mess they've created. Shamelessly, the budget projects debt to hit 25% of the state's economy by 2026-27, an eye-watering $171 billion Victorian debt. Don't swallow this garbage about COVID. The government that wants to blame COVID for the mess is the same government that fashioned a draconian and unacceptable response to coronavirus. And such are the dopes running Victoria that they don't even understand that if you impose new taxes and new levies and new charges, well, investment disappears. So the economic crisis worsens. Mums and dads in Victoria with high interest rates who don't own a home, well, those interest rate increases are passed on to tenants. Parents of students in 110 non-government schools will now pay 
as the government scraps the payroll tax exemption. As I said, net debt, net, net, heading towards 171 billion and no plans to pay back borrowings unrelated to the pandemic. Here's another metaphor of the abandonment of any kind of discipline. This is disgraceful stuff, I'm telling you. Don't start thinking Andrews is some hero. I mean, this bloke is the scourge of responsible management, a disgrace. And here's a metaphor that should apply the discipline that should apply to the management of finances. When Labor was elected, its public sector wages bill, 19 billion, 19 billion. It'll reach 26 billion this financial year. That's almost up 50%. And by the end of the Ford estimates, it'll go to 39.8 billion if you're lucky. 19 billion to 39.8 million, 39.8 billion. Just keep employing people, throwing money around, public sector, see? And here we are back to my persistent argument about energy policy being the national economic suicide note. WA's got a budget surplus only because of the massive royalties from iron ore exports and cheap gas. Victoria has destroyed that, all this green energy crap, or destroyed that deliberately as far as gas and Latrobe Valley brown coal are concerned. So how do you pay off the debt? Queensland and New South Wales are partially in the clear because of their natural resources that all these Labor political blockheads want to demonise. So Bowen and Co and Andrews and their mates and all you other thickheads, do you want Western Australia's future or Victoria's? Because as Terry McCran says today, and he and I have discussed this for years, here is the text for the nation. Without the gas, the coal, the iron ore and China, we would be a banana monarchy. Now, I've told you over and over again, the National Economic Suicide Note is being written, a fresh chapter yesterday, by a disgraceful Andrews government. Now, I wish I could be the bearer of better news, but struggling renters are now learning that the number of low-cost rentals has almost halved, a record low, all time. The number of properties listed for less than $400 a week across Australia, $400, felt people watching saying, God, where do you get something for $400? But this includes regional Australia and everything, fell to 16.2% this year. That is, of all rentals, only 16%, $400 or less. It's the lowest share on record of sub $400 a week rentals. And if interest rates continue to go up, the increases are then passed on to the renter. There's a new Liberal MP in the New South Wales Parliament. He has brains, so he most probably has no future. Matt Cross, the member for Davidson. Now he rightly last night in his maiden speech labelled renters as today's forgotten people. Now he rents with his wife. He at least provides an answer, if not the answer, that landlords who offer long-term leases of three years or more should receive a reduced land tax bill. That is, the rent would be set for say three years or four years. So give them an incentive, reduce their land tax bill. Now there are many complications to this proposal, which I will return to at a later point, but the principle is sound except that very few landlords pay land tax at all. And then back to Canberra. The Prime Minister's gone for broke on the voice to parliament and executive government. It's a voice to Parliament and the executive government. Gone for broke? Well, Albo, broke you will be, my friend. Under Albanese, the voice will have access to executive government and the wording of the referendum won't change. Advice to executive government has been accepted by the Albanese cabinet. I mean, you've got to understand, this is the real centre of power and decision making and they'll have to consult 
with this voice. Well, it won't happen, but that's what the plan is. And the referendum questions will be put to the parliament. My advice is to remember two things about this. We should never condone a race-based change to the constitution, never. So that means you vote no. But secondly, to anyone who says to you, look, I don't understand, I don't know this, tell them if you don't know, vote no. And here we go. I told you in an earlier program about PricewaterhouseCoopers being found by the Tax Practitioners Board to have breached the Code of Professional Conduct. This is unbelievable. It leaked. You've got to say this slowly. PricewaterhouseCoopers leaked confidential Treasury information about, because they were being consulted about it, about multinational tax evasion changes, multinational tax evasion changes, the tax laws to be changed, and they've now been found to have leaked that stuff to their clients. PwC's Chief Strategy and Reputation Officer, a Sean Gregory, is amongst senior partners who've been stood down, along with their Chief Executive of the Australian Operations, Tom Seymour. But Treasurer Chalmers attended a $4,000 ahead Labor Party fundraising dinner in the boardroom of Price Waterhouse's Canberra office, intimate dinner on November 21 last year. Guests paid thousands of dollars to hear Jim Chalmers. Their money must come too easily. Yet five days earlier, the Tax Practitioners Board had imposed an order on Price Waterhouse Coopers finding it had breached the code of conduct, leaking, as I said, confidential treasury information about multinational tax changes to its clients. Now, Dr. Chalmers was seated next to this bloke, Sean Gregory. Now, to be fair to Chalmers, and I do believe him, he said he knew nothing about this, and I'm sure he didn't. But Price Waterhouse Coopers did, and they're hosting the treasurer. They knew five days earlier. If I was Chalmers, I'd be dirty too. But this is the corporate world, is it not? Self-interest first, suck up to government, and on things like industrial relations and the voice just fall into line. Can someone find me a corporate leader with a few guts? That'll be a first. And I noticed the federal government today has launched a nationwide survey for all parents, students, and teachers to reshape the future of Australian schools. Hello, for one month, you can complete a survey on the Department of Education website. It's for anyone with a stake in the education system. Well, that's the whole nation, isn't it? And you'll be asked questions in the survey. What uh, questions on things like student mental health, teacher recruitment funding. What word do you think's missing on the survey? Education. Results. Results. No, this is so they can establish a five-year joint agreement with the states that will set the agenda for how schools are funded. They reckon they want to hear about what is working and what isn't working, how to improve student learning and well-being. the federal government. Look, you fools down there, the answer is staring at you. Work out what is being taught that shouldn't be taught and what is not being taught that should be taught. And as Donald Trump Jr. will tell us tomorrow night, start educating instead of indoctrinating. Well, some good news to all our Australians of Greek heritage. Good news for you. The landslide election victory in Greece on Sunday of Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis. 41% of the vote, his main political opponent, 20%. But he's talking about a new election. He's going to go to the polls again as soon as June 25 to deliver an absolute majority and get a clear mandate for his program of economic reform. The Greeks are dancing. The Athens Stock Exchange General Index jumped to its highest level in almost a decade. And to our fellow Australians of Indian heritage, a rapturous night last night at Sydney Olympic Park. 
As the leader of the world's most populous nation, Narendra Modi, the Prime Minister of India, entered the arena to chance of Modi, Modi, along with, of course, Alba. I mean, you can't get Alba away from all this. He loves all this stuff. Prime Minister Modi hailed Australia's 700,000-plus Indian community, declaring they were the real force behind the country's close relationship. And he said India was, quote, the fastest-growing economy in the world and the, quote, world's youngest and largest talent factory. Now, mention was made of a plaque to be placed at the site of a future Little India in the suburb of Harris Park near Parramatta, where I can advise, I haven't been there, that the, but I do love going, I do love going to Malabar at King's Cross. And Mohammed, how are you? I can advise that the famous Wigram Street in Harris, in Harris Park is reportedly a street of Indian restaurants. I love my Indian food, most probably worth a visit. Look, just on this issue of the voice, I know you're sick of it, but since he was beaten in the federal election last year, Scott Morrison has been much maligned. But today, in only his third speech to the parliament since he was defeated, Scott Morrison did the nation a great service. He spoke about this voice referendum. He described it as ill-defined, arguing that it would create significant constitutional risk and, quote, ultimately the High Court will be left to decipher the unknown and decide what this will all mean long after Australians have cast their vote with no further say, unquote. Full mark, Scott Morrison. As a sporting fan, he then took a swipe at sporting codes, such as the NRL and rugby and others, which have recently declared their support for The Voice. They would know, as my old man would say, bugger all about the detail, but they're going to support The Voice. By the way, how can these codes or their boards speak on behalf of every rugby supporter, every rugby player, every rugby league supporter, every rugby... They can't. It's an arrogance beyond dimension. Anyway, Scott Morrison said, this referendum is not a vote about whether Australians wish to support and do everything they can to recognise and improve the lives of Indigenous Australians. He said, we all agree on this and we can all say yes to that. But that is not the question the government is proposing for this referendum. Correctly, Scott Morrison said, this referendum is not a decision for companies, unions, sporting codes or any other group. He said, while keenly interested in the NRL's opinion on hip drop tackles and the six again rule, I respectfully won't be deferring to the NRL for constitutional advice to guide my decision. He went on, quote, permanently changing the constitution in the way the government proposes will sadly not change the desperate circumstances being experienced in so many indigenous communities across Australia, unquote. The Prime Minister, further, former Prime Minister further argued, I consider that the government's proposal to permanently change the constitution, while positively motivated, is poorly constructed. It prevents serious and unnecessary risks, both known and unknown, to the operations of the executive government and our parliament, upon which all Australians depend. And rightly, Mr Morrison argued, it's not necessary to enshrine the voice in the Constitution to ensure constitutional recognition of Indigenous Australians. And he argued correctly, the voice, voice could be created by legislation. Look, you know, this is a very important and timely intervention by former Prime Minister Morrison, and I think it does him great credit. His observations deserve support. I love the bit when he said, quote, this referendum is not a decision for companies, unions, sporting codes, or any other group. Amen to that. Mr. Morrison rightly said, 
His contribution to the debate was offered as one Australian to another. I think it's one of Mr Morrison's finest contributions. Well, let's go to Peggy Grandy in America, where from where I sit, the Democrats are in disarray. A new poll shows Biden's shocking approval numbers, and even the left-wing CNN admits the Democratic Party is in trouble. Biden is sinking, and they're now saying he may not be able to recover. 58% of Democrats and Democrat-leaning independents say they want their party to nominate someone else. Now, you recall last week, Peggy said, told us, they're thinking at the moment of having no primaries, no Democratic primaries. Biden's got the gig. It'll be interesting to see. But as I said, Peggy, we're with us in a minute. Biden's approval rating is at an historic low, 36%. One CNN reporter rightly suggested his age and mental awareness, an awareness which is almost non-existent, have led to the polling numbers. Now, I might add, the same poll showed 54% of voters. Now, this was a left-wing outfit doing the polling. 54% of voters said that Trump had the mental sharpness to serve effectively as president. Well, before we go to Peggy, let's look at this mental awareness issue. Listen to Biden in Japan rambling incoherently about debt. And I'm simply asking, how the hell do media sit by and listen to this without lacerating the so-called leader of the free world? Listen to this rubbish and that's all it is, rubbish. And there's a lot of other, for example, the idea that we're, uh, in terms of uh, taxes, that they refuse to, for example, we, uh, I was able to balance the budget and pass everything from the, the global warming bill. Anyway, I was able to cut by $1.7 billion in the first two years, the deficit that we uh, were, were accumulating. And uh, because I was able to say to it that, the 55 corporations in America that made 40, $400 billion or $40 billion, $400 billion that uh, they, uh, they hit pay zero in tax. Zero. That's oh, unbelievable. Uh, by the way, I won't go into detail. Most of what he said is incorrect. And then this monstrous untruth. Or is it an innocent lie if that's not a contradiction in terms? Now, in case you didn't know, According to Joe Biden, he created the Quad. Joe Biden created the Quad. Listen to this. And what's going on now is, the, look, look at the meeting we had here today, uh, uh, today and yesterday, uh, the Quad. Did, I, I bet you, I would, maybe some of you thought it, but I doubt many, many, many people in this audience or any other audience would have said that two years after being elected, I'd be able to convince India, Australia, Japan, and the United States to form an organization called the Quad to maintain stability in the Indian Ocean and the South China Sea. Uh, I, I'm sorry. I, I, I count me out. I can't hack this. I mean, how does someone jump up amongst the sycophantic media and other leaders like you, Albo? Though I suppose Albo wouldn't know anyway. Biden is wrong again. That is a lie. He didn't convince anyone to form the alliance, the Quad as in four nations. It was created by the late Shinzo Abe, then Prime Minister of Japan, who initiated an alliance with the Prime Ministers of India and Australia, along with the then Vice President Dick Cheney in 2007. In 2008, we withdrew from the Quad, putting the group out of commission until 2017. 
But during an ASEAN summit that year, 2017, the four original countries, including the United States and the then President Donald Trump, revived the quadrilateral security dialogue, resumed joint exercises and worked to push back the Chinese Communist Party's malign activities in the region. Now, is this another manifestation of Biden's total cognitive decline? The man can't speak coherently. He can't remember. And in the modern history of the world, we have never seen anything like it. The Quad was created more than 15 years ago and was in place when Biden took office in 2021. Where are the media nailing these untruths? Let's go to Peggy. Peggy, thank you for your time again. We could talk all day, but Hillary Clinton's now suggested that Donald Trump's supporters are mentally unwell. And in 2016, remember, she called them a basket of deplorables. Now, Peggy, with that alienation of Trump supporters, surely any comeback by Hillary Clinton to replace a stumbling and incoherent Biden is even more of a long shot. Well, Alan, there is so much there. And sometimes I think I must be the crazy one because everybody else seems to think that he's just doing just fine. I mean, even Hillary Clinton said he's, you know, doing all right and we should reelect him. But, you know, Joe Biden's thoughts, it's as if they've been put into a blender. And so we know that he has cognitive decline, but, you know, the more dangerous part is his policies are terrible. And so even if he could make a coherent sentence, sentence which he can't, his policies are wrong. They're harming the American people. They're endangering the world. And so the, he's completely covered for all the time. And you're right. People should be screaming at the top of their lungs that this man ne needs to be held to account. Yeah. But he lies. His White House spokesperson from the White House podium lies. The Pentagon, the DOJ, the FBI, they all lie. And they're never held to account for it. So they're going to continue to do it. We are going into an election season where facts statistics and being held accountable for his record truly matter. The American people need to know what truth is mm. so they can make well, an informed decision. Well, not just these days, anybody who speaks the truth is called is accused of spewing disinformation. Yeah, I mean, not just the American people. I mean, the free world needs to know. I'm just wondering if Hillary Clinton isn't in some sort of cognitive decline because at a financial, t financial Times conference in Washington a few days ago, she confusingly suggested that Vladimir Putin... This is Hillary Clinton. Now, she's described Putin as a complicated, messianic, narcissistic authoritarian. She says Putin would not have invaded Ukraine if Trump had won in 2020. Uh, Peggy, a very strange logic. Putin invaded Ukraine because Trump lost, which is precisely what Donald Trump is saying, isn't it? Well, exactly. For once, I agree with Hillary Clinton. There's a lot of things happening in the world right now and in our nation that wouldn't be happening if Donald Trump was president. But it just shows the depths of the Trump derangement syndrome. I mean, Trump is blamed when he's president. He's blamed when he's not president. He's blamed because he won. He's blamed because he lost. And this is going to continue. We're going to see it go into the 2024 election. But these people not only hate Donald Trump and everything he stood for, they hate the people who supported him. And so we're alienating half of the country who still believes that Donald mm, Trump and mm. his policies were better for America and the world than well, the mess I, we have right now. Absolutely. I want to come back to this because this is very, very critical to us here in Australia. Now, I raised this with Peggy last week and Peggy has written subsequently quite brilliantly on this. This is this Durham report, which laid out in detail 
how a conversation between our former foreign minister, Alexander Downer, and a Trump campaign volunteer, George Papadopoulos, in a London wine bar in 2016, led to what has become the greatest case, allegedly, of election interference in US history. So the FBI seized on one paragraph where Papadopoulos had said that Russia could help the Trump campaign with the release of information damaging to Hillary Clinton. The FBI didn't question the information. They ignored their own Russian analysts and launched Operation Crossfire Hurricane in July 2016, a full-scale investigation into alleged links between Donald Trump and the Russian government, seemingly with the intent to grievously harm Trump's reputation and his chances of winning in 2016. Now, Peggy, this was all a fabrication. Seriously, shouldn't someone be in the dock? Well, they should, but we know that the left is never held to account. And actually, you know, people miss the beauty of Donald Trump, and he was actually very funny. And a lot of this came after the DNC servers were hacked. Hillary Clinton was subpoenaed. 33,000 emails that she had deleted had been subpoenaed. And Donald Trump kind of half-jokingly said, hey, Russia, if you're listening, maybe you can help find the 33,000 emails that have gone missing. And then he said, I bet there's some real beauties in there. I mean, this was kind of tongue-in-cheek stuff. And he was seen as this threat to America and the world colluding with Russia. But we know that the left is always guilty of the very things they accuse us yeah. of. And with the Durham report, we're seeing that these fingerprints go all the way back to Hillary Clinton herself and even to the White House where Barack Obama was briefed about this intelligence coming in that wasn't intelligence at all. It had no substantiation. It couldn't be substantiated. They knew it was false and he green-lighted to go ahead with this Absolutely. investigation anyway. Well that's right. Now, this special counsel, dead right. Now, John Durham, the special counsel, has concluded, it's a 300-page report, that neither US law enforcement nor the intelligence community had any actual evidence of collusion that they were holding at the commencement of the Crossfire Hurricane investigation. So here we've got a 300-page plus page. None of this in Australian papers, by the way. None of this in Australia, with the exception of the brilliant young Australian in Washington, Adam Crichton. 300-page report describing how the FBI, supposedly an impartial federal law enforcement agency, became a tool of the Democratic Party and of the Clinton campaign. And that produced the fraud that eventually became the Russia collusion hoax. Now, even Alexander Downer himself, according to the Durham report, later revealed, and I quote Downer, there was no suggestion that it was collusion between Donald Trump or Donald Trump's campaign and the Russians. That's in the report. Downer is quoted. And the Durham report says, the FBI discounted or willfully ignored material information that did not support the narrative of a collusive relationship between Trump and Russia. Peggy, the FBI investigation then led to the Mueller inquiry, which extended the political smear while coming up with zero evidence of any collusion between Trump and Russia when it was publicly released in 2019. And there's still no evidence seven years later. What the hell is going on with the institutional framework in America? 
Well, it's very frightening. And even the left, the media on the left, can't ignore this anymore. And even some Democrats in Congress are concerned about this. This past week, there was information released that these FISA warrants um, that go out where you can spy on is a foreign intelligence um, surveillance court. They can get these warrants and it's meant to be to spy on international foreign um, actors. But 270,000 times information was collected on Americans without warrants. And so as the FISA court looks to renew its um, verification from Congress, Congress, even some on the left are saying, we're not going to do it because they not only went after information that was unfounded on Donald Trump, but at the same time, they ignored factual information that was against Hillary Clinton, the Clinton campaign, against her campaign finances. And so the scales have been tipped going after Donald Trump with unfounded information and ignoring a mountain of information against Hillary Clinton mm. and now against Joe Biden and his family as well. Absolutely, against Hunter Biden. I see, so we, I, we, we've got to confirm this. This is not me or Peggy talking. This is the Durham report, special counsel. Russian meddling in the US campaign in 2016 had nothing to do with the Trump campaign. But this didn't bother the Trump haters in the media who went into a frenzy and CNN and MSNBC hosts, together with their print journalist friends, slammed Trump's supposed links to Russia, and it became almost a religion. And the Durham report confirms that in July 2016, months before the presidential election, now this is not Peggy quoting, this, not me, this is in the report, a few days before the FBI launched its probe into the so-called collusion between Trump and Russia, the director of national intelligence, John Ratcliffe shared with President Obama and Vice President Biden, quote unquote, intelligence that Hillary Clinton's campaign was planning to smear Trump by linking him to separate Russian efforts to interfere with the election. And the report states, Garen report, quote, no FBI personnel interviewed by the special counsel, that's Durham, recalled crossfire hurricane personnel taking any action to vet the Clinton plan intelligence. This stands in sharp contrast to its substantial reliance, that's the FBI, on the, on the uncorroborated steel reports, which at least some FBI personnel appeared to know was likely being funded or promoted by the Clinton campaign. Uh, I mean, this is in the Durham report. How much longer can this stuff be ignored? Well, it can't. And you think of all the damage that was done, not just to Donald Trump politically, professionally and personally, but to everybody in his orbit who surrounded him. Think of the headwinds that this produced against his administration, accomplishing the very things that the American people elected Donald Trump to do. None of this ever should have happened. Donald Trump should have come into the White House with a clean slate. But instead, he had these false accusations swirling around him the entire time he was president-elect and president. And don't you know that if there was any semblance of any sort of evidence against him, that this Durham report would have been more than happy to come out and condemn him. But even they could not do it because there is nothing there. And so whether it's the yeah. Mueller report, the Durham report, there is no there there except for the fingerprint, the well, finger pointing yeah. that should go back That's to it. Hillary Clinton and to Barack Obama, well, not to me, Donald Trump. Yeah, look, this is very important stuff. The same FBI that went after Trump shut down four 
potential probes into Hillary and Bill Clinton, following evidence the FBI received about a foreign party seeking, quote, to contribute to Hillary Clinton's anticipated presidential campaign as a way to gain influence with Clinton. Nothing happened because, quote, everyone was super careful. They were tiptoeing around HRC, that's Mrs Clinton, because there was a chance she'd be the next president. Now, the gifted Australian journalist, Evan Crichton, is the only person who's presented this to an Australian audience, that I know of anyway, to provide adequate reporting of the Durham report. And he reports, this is unbelievable, that two FBI officers critical to launching the Crossfire investigation were texting each other throughout 2016. Quote, this is one of them, FBI. Trump's not going to be president, right? To which the other replied, no, he's not. We'll stop it. Peggy, two FBI officers' words fail me. I mean, the Durham report's been dismissed or ignored by much of the US mainstream media and here in Australia. Some of these people who went on with it and believed it and promoted it and prosecuted won Pulitzer Prizes for validating the hoax. The crime was assumed. The evidence was never forthcoming. Peggy. Well, we trust on these great institutions to follow the facts and the evidence where it leads. But we know that they didn't do that. We know that there was such political bias that um, infiltrated their investigation. They couldn't even see to or through the facts. And so, and to your point, these Pulitzer Prizes, they haven't been returned. No retractions or corrections or apologies have been made. The left just continues on. They ignore it, they cover up, and they will continue to do it because they get away they with get it away every with it. time. Right. Absolutely. So, I mean, the former Attorney General- They never get punished. What do they get? They get White House jobs and then they get a That's you it. know media contract. This is staggering so stuff. these people are never held to account. Staggering stuff. You're dead right. The former Attorney General, William Barr, who commissioned the Durham report, observed only last week. This is William Barr, not Peggy Grandy. This is William Barr. He commissioned the report. Former American Attorney General, quote, the people who are criticising it, that's the Durham report, are the people who perpetrated the big lie and advanced that false narrative, peddling it to the American people, doing immense damage to our country and our institutions. Now, Adam Crichton has written that the crime of the tapping of a phone <laughs> at the Watergate Hotel, and he's right, Adam, seems to trifle by comparison. Peggy, the same institutions have more or less suppressed and dismissed the true story about Hunter Biden's laptop which could have been devastating to Biden's 2020 presidential campaign. And as Adam Crichton has rightly argued for America, those who've been screaming loudest about misinformation and disinformation have ended up being the greatest purveyors of it. But as you say, Peggy, no sanctions. And of course, these are the people on television. These are the people that sign the letter as national security and intelligence advisors who say that, you know, it looks like Russian disinformation instead of the facts of it was Hunter Biden's laptop. These people are on television. They still have their security clearances. They have this, some, this um, feeling of authority that people look to because they have the credibility supposedly behind them. They have been complicit in this lie and they're the ones who are still given the platform to cover it up. Mm -hmm. This has to stop. The American people have to have confidence in the Federal Bureau well, of Investigation and the, the free world. of Justice. The free world. And in this government work for us, not against us. Yeah, I mean, the free world's got to have that confidence. I mean, we can best sum it up. We've got to go, but I mean, all this was a theory before. Now it's a fact. What's the fact? Yeah. 
the weaponization of federal agencies against Donald Trump. Peggy, you've written splendidly on that. Thanks for your time. We'll keep at it and we'll talk to you next week. Peggy Grandy in America. Thank you, Alan. You know, the died in the wool liberal supporter seems far too often to have to shake his or her head in bewilderment. There's a pre-selection battle in New South Wales this Saturday to select the candidate for the vacant Senate spot following the untimely death of Jim Molan. This is a litmus test for the Liberal Party. The unmentioned James Brown, I think he's a very, very good candidate. There is an unknown opportunist, Maria Kovacic, you've never heard of her, who got beaten badly as a drop-in candidate at last year's federal election in the seat of Parramatta, virtually unknown. And then the factions, oh, here we go again, tipped her into the New South Wales Liberal Party presidency. It'd be laughable if it wasn't so serious. And now the ideological mob, who are the architects of Australia being a political ocean of red, are now trying to manipulate the numbers to get her this Senate spot. Well, politics, I'm saying, is about many things, but above all, loyal and proven service. I was there when the bushfires savaged the south coast of New South Wales a couple of years ago. Devastation that you can't imagine. I remember taking a call from the member, Andrew Constance, who'd been successful in many portfolios in the New South Wales government, acknowledged by Gladys Berejiklian. He'd been treasurer, transport minister, but on the phone to me, he was weighed down, almost broken by the burden that he accepted of properly serving people who'd lost everything. I remember getting a helicopter to go down to see him. I was worried that so much was being asked of one person, but he never yielded, night and day, every day. And he's still helping serve that part of the world. He's a candidate to replace Jim Molan. I've got nothing to say other than two things. Worthy, Constance, of course. But if service to others is the hallmark of political representation, Andrew Constance has a century of service to his name. If the Liberal Party on Saturday doesn't see that, then the public will know that no matter how many defeats it suffers, it still refuses to learn. But to Queensland, oh God help me. You might recall last week, I spoke to the opposition leader, David Christofoli, and I asked him about treaties that the Palaszczuk government was legislating, or legislating to initiate actually, with indigenous Queenslanders, based on the so-called recognition of the amount of land allegedly taken by British colonial forces and the impact of massacres. And I mentioned that at a cabinet meeting in North Queensland, the Palaszczuk government was talking about treaties with 150 different indigenous nations in Queensland. And we were told the financial impacts would vary depending on the impacts of colonisation. I asked David Christofoli in that interview, did he agree with this? Have a look at that exchange. Now, now what you mentioned this cabinet meeting in, in Cairns. What's all this nonsense that the Palaszczuk government had that meeting and passed a treaty process allegedly setting the standard in Indigenous government relations to recognise the amount of land taken by, oh, this is an invention, by British colonial forces and the impact of massacres. Do you agree with all of this? My understanding is the coalition voted in favour of it. Well, Alan, there wasn't a single mention about any of that in the bill. And let me tell you what I spoke about in my contribution. Uh, they talk about truth-telling. I do want to tell some truths, and I want to do some good for Indigenous people. Now, David, David Christofoli, you want to tell some truths. 
I asked you specifically there, did you agree with the government proposing treaties to 150 Indigenous nations in Queensland? Now, in hindsight, I failed in the interview. I should have pulled you up because you didn't really answer me, but I trusted you. I thought you were telling the truth. That's what you said. You just wanted to tell some truths. Now it appears clear why you didn't answer, because you're now on the record as saying that you won't roll back Indigenous treaty legislation if you become Premier. Well, David Christofulli, I've got to tell you, you're a good bloke, but the fact that you won't may well prevent you from ever being Premier. The laws have now been passed in Queensland with the support of David Christofulli's coalition, allowing the Palaszczuk government to negotiate dozens of treaty deals with First Nations groups. No budget, no details, but they'll involve financial settlements worth hundreds of millions of dollars each, which of course the government doesn't have, and could result in changes to school curricula, well, the names of place names of suburbs and rivers, reforms in health, criminal justice, child protection. And we are told that all 34 coalition MPs led by David Christofulli voted in favour of the laws. Senior coalition figures, federal politicians, grassroots members, branches, coalition branches are white with rage. And they're ringing me today, no point ringing me, ring him. They're passing motions condemning the Christofulli opposition. They're calling for treaty laws to be repealed and the matter rightly to go to the LNP State Convention in July. Federal MPs, I'm told, are so outraged they're now threatening not to hand out how to vote cards at the next state election. And a senior federal coalition politician was quoted as saying that they won't get into government at this rate. Well, David Christofulli, you're imitating what's cost the coalition votes across Australia for months and months, years and years, by being a mirror image of Labor. And yet you now utter this jargon, and I quote you, we supported this because it matters, and I'm determined to drive real reform. Hey, that is just rhetorical crap. David Christofulli, I know this bloke well, I'll tell you something. Unless someone in the Queensland Coalition can belt a few people across the head, this alone is opening the door to the re-election of the Palaszczuk government. Who would have thought Anastasia Palaszczuk, down on a luck, could so easily corner her opposition and frighten them into a political stance which is going to put the same coalition at odds with its membership? When will these people ever wake up? Is there anyone left in the Liberal Party who knows how to win? I can't remember the number of times I've spoken about this infamous case of Julian Assange, an Australian imprisoned in the UK's harshest prison, awaiting extradition to the United States. If extradited, he faces a 175 year sentence for allegedly exposing war crimes. That's the first joke. I spoke yesterday about the criminal justice system as it has applied to Lindy Chamberlain, Kathleen Folbig, and now what's going on in Canberra over this Brittany Higgins affair. Put simply, not only has Julian Assange committed no crime, the facts involved in the case don't support a crime. As his very talented and distinguished Australian lawyer Jennifer Robinson argued this week, what is it that Julian Assange would be pleading to? In Australia, WikiLeaks won the most outstanding contribution to journalism award in 2011 for the very same publications 
for which Julian Assange sits in prison and faces 175 years in jail. Anthony Albanese told a Labor caucus meeting in February last year, enough is enough. And he said he can't see what's served by keeping Mr. Assange incarcerated, unquote. Julian Assange's health continues to deteriorate. He's 50 years of age, recovering from a stroke, and has been in prison for 14 years. The United States has never made a case, nor has anyone, that the information published by Julian Assange put anyone's life in danger. And remember, all the major US news outlets republished what WikiLeaks had published without a single charge laid against them. Then there's Joe Biden. In 2021, at a summit for democracy, to showcase the importance of democracy to the world, Biden said America would set up a fund, quote, to help protect investigative journalists against nuisance lawsuits designed to prevent them from doing their work, unquote. Donald Trump Jr. addresses some of these issues with me in that exclusive interview tomorrow night here on ADH at 8pm. Last year, one of our finest journalists now in Washington, Adam Crichton, wrote, the Assange case has sifted out. Those who genuinely believe individuals have rights from those who think government is a tool to destroy your political enemies. He wrote, for now, Assange's fate appears sealed by inertia, hypocrisy and timidity. Well, Prime Minister Albanese was right when he said enough is enough. But does that only apply when you're in opposition? What happens when you get to government? Kathleen Folbig's been in jail for 20 years for what it has now been established by 97 eminent scientists in jail for a crime she didn't commit. Julia Assange has been in jail for 14 years without any conviction. You go, this bloke's in Australia, you've got to think of this. In jail, forget what you think, but what you read. This bloke's in jail without any conviction. Locked up. An Australian publisher. Not accused of hacking. He is the first publisher, Julian Assange, in history, not this century, in history, anywhere in the world to be charged with espionage. As the Republican Senator Rand Paul said, quote, the founding fathers would have protected WikiLeaks at all costs, and it's time we inherit their spirit. Julian Assange did not hack any US records, nor did he assist Chelsea Manning to hack the US service. She already had access to the documents in question. Chelsea Manning has already taken full responsibility for obtaining the documents. All Julian Assange and WikiLeaks did was passively receive information. Then, as journalists do, protected Manning as a source and published the cables, as did the New York Times, The Guardian and other media organisations. Chelsea Manning has said, and I quote, Although I stopped sending documents to WikiLeaks, no one associated with WikiLeaks pressured me into giving more information. She said the decisions I made to send documents and information to WikiLeaks were my own decisions, and I take full responsibility for my actions, unquote. Well, during the trial of Chelsea Manning, it was confirmed that no US personnel were put at risk or harmed due to the publications, yet this case has been going on for over 10 years. Chelsea Manning was born Bradley Manning, a former United States Army soldier, and she was convicted in 2013 of violations of the Espionage Act after leaking material to 
the publisher WikiLeaks. She is imprisoned from 2010 to 2017, but her sentence was commuted by President Obama. In other words, Chelsea Manning has been pardoned. What Australia should be asking of the Biden administration is to offer to Julian Assange what was made available to Chelsea Manning. Julian Assange's lawyer, Jennifer Robinson, and his wife, Stella, spoke at the National Press Club yesterday. They made the point that Julian had been given awards for the reports named in the charges against him. The board of the Walkley Awards gave WikiLeaks the prize for the most outstanding contribution to journalism in 2011 and praised it for delivering, quote, an avalanche of inconvenient truths, unquote, during a courageous commitment to journalism. News organisations, including The New York Times, Le Monde, Der Spiegel and El Pay, issued a joint letter last November calling on the US government to drop the charges against Julian Assange. I'll be speaking to Julian Assange's wife and Jennifer Robinson privately tomorrow, but I'm joined now by Gabriel Shipton, to whom we've spoken before, you've heard from him before, the brother of Julian Assange. Gabriel, thank you for your time. What is the latest? Did you recently meet with United States Ambassador Caroline Kennedy, or was that a parliamentary delegation? Uh, that was a parliamentary uh, delegation, Alan. That was friends of Julian Assange, a parliamentary group uh, from every party, from uh, the Liberal Party, two from the Labor Party, uh, the Greens, and uh, Andrew Wilkie representing uh, the, the independents. And I, I think that's a very big step. It's a recognition of the support uh, that Julian has in Australia by the State Department uh, in America. They were able to see these politicians. Uh, that group, I think, is now over a quarter of the parliament. So it's millions and millions of Australians. They're representatives of part of this yes. uh, Friends of Julian and Assange they, group. And they, and they all agree. And this parliamentary delegation, from as you say, from all political parties, just for the benefit of our viewers, they all agreed that the case against Julian had dragged on for too long and he should be allowed to return to Australia. Now, of course, Biden was to visit, and I know that's why Jennifer Robinson was here and Stella was here. Has that thrown a bit of a spanner in the works that the hope that Biden could have been personally briefed on all of this, not that he'd even understand anything that was said to him, I got it, but anyway, the fact that he hasn't come, has that been a bit of an impediment? Yeah, well, look, it was a chance for uh, the Assange supporters and Assange, uh, you know, activists here in Australia, uh, a time when all the eyes of the US media uh, would have been here in Australia, the domestic US media, uh, to see how this, uh, this unprecedented, as you said, unprecedented case against the publisher is affecting uh, US relationships uh, with their closest allies uh, like Australia. Australia is extremely strategically uh, important, you know, we're a resource-rich country, and and just getting that feedback into uh, local politics in the United States uh, that this is an unwanted prosecution, I think, would have been uh, very, very important. But see, Gabriel, in the last, it's, it's ironic almost in a way that I'm talking to you tonight because in the last what two, three weeks. There has been endless media publicity about the relationship between Australia and America, the AUKUS agreement, the Quad, the G7, elbows out there shaking hands with Sleepy Joe and so on. So in other words, hey, we've got this really important, close relationship with America. Isn't the simple question to ask, isn't it time to demonstrate that? 
I think that's exactly right. And people are scratching their heads. You know, this close relationship, this AUKUS, uh, AUKUS agreement, uh, the two countries that are responsible for uh, locking up this Australian, for uh, imprisoning this Australian for over, as you say, 14 years, are our closest allies, the United Kingdom and the US. And I think people in Australia, well, the, the feeling I get when I speak to people is people are scratching their heads. Yeah. They're saying, how come they can't even do us this favour? Now, how come the Albanese government can't uh, push these, push our allies? But a bloke locked say, hey, up look, without a conviction. A, a bloke locked up without yeah. a conviction. Am I right in saying that this, these politicians, when they met Caroline Kennedy, the daughter of John Fitzgerald Kennedy, the assassinated president, uh, they presented a petition, did they not, of 26 thousand signatures calling for your brother to be freed. Did that happen? Uh, no, that did not end up happening. They did not present uh, the petition. There was some resistance from other members in the group uh, that they didn't want to uh, you know, present a petition at that time in that meeting. But that petition is growing now every single day. 500 signatures are added by Australians every single, uh, every single day. Uh, to that petition, which is a reflection of the concern yes. in the country. Yeah. Do, do you have any proof at all? Is there any intimation to you or the family that the American government at the very highest level understands this level of support at the very highest level? Other, other than the meeting with Carolyn Kennedy, no, there's no indication that uh, they are aware that, uh, you know, this is upsetting to a majority of Australians. You know, the last mm. poll... Uh, in the in the Sydney Morning Herald, yes, uh, just just before Joe but Biden's I mean, arrival, seventy nine percent. I know, but I mean, forget the majority of Australia. This is an Australian locked up for fourteen years without mm. a conviction. That's the issue. There is no other issue. I mean, Chelsea Manning is pardoned when she's taken mm. by America, by Obama, when she's taken full responsibility for the hacking. Your brother's in jail for doing what other media outlets did, just publishing. And Chelsea Manning has said, all your brother did was to receive information. And that's what all media organisations do. And the person who hacked the documents was Chelsea Manning. She's been pardoned. Your brother's in a single cell at this rotten Belmarsh prison with limited ventilation 23 hours a day. I mean, how the hell does he... I mean, OK, will he be alive when they finally decide to release him? Well, that's why we're, you know, we're, we're all working to keep Julian going. You know, uh, he gets phone calls with Stella, visits with his family and trying just to support him through this so that he can survive uh, this fight. It's a fight for his life that he's doing. Yes. And, and his whole family is involved in yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, surely, oh, I mean, nothing makes sense here, I've got to say, but surely the Assange case against your brother, undermines the First Amendment of the United States Constitution, which allegedly protects freedom of speech and freedom of the press. Now, I've spoken before about Jamil Jaffa. Jamil Jaffa is an academic in charge of the Amendment Institute at Columbia University. And he has said, and I quote, the charges against Assange rely almost entirely on conduct that investigative journalists engage in every day. The indictments, he said, are a frontal attack on press freedom. Now, our own former foreign minister, Bob Carr, said, it doesn't matter if Julian Assange, because I hear these stories, oh, Julian Assange. Well, Bob Carr says it doesn't matter if you think that Julian Assange is an attractive figure or not. Bob Carr said he's ours and we should be protecting him. Mm. And an Australian Defence Department task force in 2010 concluded, 
Task Force 2010, what's that, 13 years ago, that WikiLeaks did not reveal any significant details about operational incidents involving Australians beyond those already in the public place. Gabriel, how would an investigative journalist have been treated who'd released the same material? We just have to look at how, you know, the New York Times, The Guardian, uh, you know, they've all released the, the same material. None of them, you know, have been prosecuted under this. But what they, what we have seen is their executive editors, their publishers, you know, coming out uh, against this uh, prosecution. And what we, what we think that means is that they are experiencing the chilling effect. Uh, they are getting leaks across their desks, uh, you know, national security information across their desks. Uh, that they can't publish because of uh, what's happening to Julian. So mm. we know there is this uh, chilling effect, uh, particularly on national security uh, reporting from the United States uh, that, that is existing around the, around the world because you have journalists, in, even in France or Germany now, where uh, if they travel to the United Kingdom, is the United States going to reach in there and, and extraterritorially apply their laws uh, mm. to them. Mm. Uh, so it is a concern for journalists all around the world, oh, publishers all around the world. Yeah, I know, but it's a concern for your brother. Look, I just say again, I don't understand this and I've never understood it. We're supposed to be a good ally of the United States. We dispatched a warship to the Gulf when we were asked. We went into Afghanistan when we were asked. We've sent trainers and planes into Iraq and Syria when we were asked. We host two American communication bases in Australia. I would have thought we're entitled to a modest request that in the spirit with which Barack Obama pardoned Chelsea Manning, drop the extradition orders against Julian Assange. Gabriel, before we go, how do you read what will happen next and how immediate may what will happen next be? Well, we know now that this, the lines of communication uh, have now been opened uh, between Julian's uh, team uh, and uh, the people pursuing him in the United States. So this is the beginning uh, of, a re of a resolution and, and we're really uh, asking the government to, to, to really use that special relationship to mm. push harder for a proper resolution, Absolutely. a proper diplomatic resolution and so that Julian can come home uh, and bring his kids here and, and, and settle down and, and, and raise Awful. his family. Awful stuff. All I can say to you and your dad and your family, I'm not the only one who wishes you well. As I said earlier, I'll be meeting with your brother's lawyer, uh, Jennifer Robinson, and his wife tomorrow morning for a cup of tea. But here we go again, the justice system. It is the justice system again, completely under the microscope. Gabriel, thank you for your time. Thank you, Alan. Well, before we go, you won't hear this anywhere else, but I'm telling you, the Albanese government is already in trouble, big trouble. Inflation's not going away. So, I'm sorry, interest rate hikes, most probably not over. How do I know? We'll try gas prices. Data from the Australian energy market operator shows that on Monday, the wholesale price of gas out of Queensland was about $19.50 a gigajoule. Now, this is at the same time the Albanese government has a price cap on gas of $12 a gigajoule. In other words, Australia's gas companies, the vast majority of which are foreign owned, are just telling Albo to get stuffed. They're ignoring the Prime Minister. They are charging Australians 65% more 
for our own gas than the $12 price cap level set by the government. So it means that the inflation situation will get worse. In the March quarter, the biggest contributors to inflation were gas and household fuels. Over the quarter, the quote, gas and other household fuels component of the consumer price inflation metric rose by a staggering 14.3%. And I don't see this changing anytime soon. So this means, doesn't it? The Reserve Bank will likely increase rates even further and they're not likely to do the government any favours. Labor has no right to put the blame on Vladimir Putin. Gas prices in the United States, Asia and Europe are lower than they are in Australia. In fact, many are reporting that Australian gas, I've said this many times, can be purchased for less in Asia than the price we pay for our gas here. In other words, our gas is cheaper on the export market than it is on the domestic market. You can't make this stuff up. Meanwhile, the Albanese government has given a gift to the same gas companies that are taking us for a ride. Now, you might remember a few weeks ago, headlines across the nation's newspaper said gas companies slapped with massive multi-billion dollar tax hike. Well, it's hardly a tax hike. Check the numbers. Right now, Australian oil and gas companies are making record profits. They're raking in about $164 billion in revenue a year. Yet tax revenue on this is currently a piddling $16 billion. And Labor's budget has only increased the tax revenue on the gas companies by a further piddling $2.4 billion. Now compare this to Norway. Norway's oil and gas sector makes about $327 billion in revenue a year, but pays a massive $209 billion in taxes. But that tax revenue goes into Norway's sovereign fund that pays for their welfare, their education and their health systems, meaning the people of Norway pay less tax. The short point, Australians are being ripped off. They're being ripped off by a government that doesn't have the intestinal fortitude to enforce its own policies, a cap on gas prices. They're being ripped off by the green activists who are telling them taxpayer subsidised, weather dependent, wind turbines and solar panels that are manufactured in coal power Chinese factories. And they're being ripped off by foreign owned gas companies that refuse to pay their fair share of tax while charging Australian consumers extortionate prices for the gas we can't avoid using. And Albo talks about a reformist government. At the weekend, he said, we've dealt with immediate challenges by building a better future long term. Albo, you're in the smoke and mirrors department, but hopefully the voter will soon wake up. Now, that's it from me for this week. But before we go, the special tomorrow night at 8pm here on ADH, Donald Trump Jr. Tell me what you think. I'm speaking, Alan Jones, to Donald Trump Jr. You can email me. I'd be interested in your thoughts. Alan Jones at ADH.TV. I pre-recorded him this morning. He was beyond outstanding. Tomorrow night, 8 o'clock here on ADH. He will be touring Australia in July. Get your tickets. There it is on your screen at trumplive.com.au. Trumplive.com.au. And don't forget the Rugby World Cup this year. You can join Campo and me on board and Dave, the great David Campisi, an 11-day premium river cruise in Paris, October 19 to October 29, five full days in Paris, Shore excursions, that's when you're not watching the rugby, including we go to the Palace of Versailles. There's a walking food tour 
in Normandy's capital, a beautiful Rouen. There's a visit to the Franco-Australian Museum and the Sir John Monash Centre. Monet's glorious garden at Gavern, activities galore, plus, and here's the steak knives bit. Remember that ad? Oh, there's more to come. Match tickets to both semifinals, the bronze final and the Rugby World Cup final. Join Campo and me. You can call 1300, there's the number, 1300 787 888. Write it down, 1300 787 888. Or visit the website zt.com.au. zt.com.au. That's it from me this week. I'll see you next week. You're watching ADH. I'm Alan Jones. Good night.